You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. What you missed this week. I'm Scarlett Fu. This podcast has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Closed show that I co-anchor with Joe Weisenthal, Caroline Hyde, and Romaine Bostic on Bloomberg Television. What'd you miss? Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspective on the week's top stories and those you may just have missed. This week was another edition of What You Miss from Home. We spoke with Chris Ailman, Chief Investment Officer at CalSTRS, the California State Teachers Retirement System, which has about $227 billion in assets under management. Chris has served as the fund's CIO since 2000 and has three decades plus of institutional investment experience. We talked about the stock market's FOMO rally since March 23rd, as investors seem to look past sobering economic data and earnings to buy the dip. Well, don't really line up. They're completely divorced, in my mind. Uh, the market's pricing in almost perfection, like you said, a very sharp V. And I, I got to tell you, we're seeing anything but that. Uh, you know, when AutoNation says that, you know, their business, 50% of their business is gone, people will come back and buy cars. But uh, people are unemployed. And the people that are employed know their employers are uh, having earnings hits. They're getting worried. So this is tough. This is not, uh, I don't think we're going to see a V pattern at all. And, and this market, uh, it's, got, it's got a bid, but it doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, what's the interesting thing, though, uh, Chris, about this market, though, is particularly on the S&P 500, uh, even though we have seen this rally take place, it's been relatively contained. I mean, we've sort of been bouncing uh, between that 2,900 level and like 2,950-something. Uh, there's a, a general sense here that even if, um, we don't crash. There's this idea here that the market will still be range bound for quite some time until we get some better clarity as to that economic recovery. What do you think of that? I think we are range bound. You know, I hate to say it, it's sad, but the first victim of the coronavirus was that 11 year long bull market and it's gone. We're now in a recession and uh, a bear market is normally a seesaw, very choppy pattern. And I think we're going to be in a range. I think we're at the top of the range right now, close to 29.50 in the S&P. And I have to hate to say it, but I think the bottom of the range is down close to, to the 2,400. So almost a 20% drop from here. And it's got to start paying attention to earnings and to economic numbers that are coming out. Uh, I think, you know, as Scarlett said, they're looking for a V-shape. I'm not even sure we're going to get a U. I think it's going to be more of a square root and a, and a choppy square root at that. 
that could be potentially very ugly. Um, I want to get your thoughts on something Scott Minard of Guggenheim uh, wrote about earlier today. And I know that you're friendly with him. You know him well. Um, he talked about all this government rescue and how corporate borrowers are most likely on the way to becoming something akin to GSEs, like a Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac. Many companies have likely gained access to financing simply, he says, on the strength of the government's in intentions to intervene in credit markets. What kind of dislocations does that create or does it not create any because we just don't see spreads widening? You know, uh, and I respect Scott a great deal, the muscle man of, of Santa Monica. Um, it's, it's caught between two places. On one hand, I would absolutely agree that, that there's going to be, there's a high demand, and we've already seen that, a high demand for bridge financing to help companies balance or, or go across this gap in the economy that we're seeing. The economy's shut down. Yet the amount of federal money thrown at this is just, shocking, but it's been fairly indiscriminate. It's almost the old adage of throwing spaghetti against the wall. It's gone over all over the place. So I think, uh, you know, we're going to see tension and you're already starting to hear about uh, debt and stress problems, companies uh, threatening bankruptcy, and that's at the, the large scale. There's going to be mid-cap and very much small-cap and mom-and-pop uh, bankruptcies, people that are not able to bridge this uh, because I think we're going to be slow in the summer. And then if we see a resurgence in the fall, this is not a two-month shutdown. This is going to be a slow economy for as much as six to nine months, which is a recession. So Scott may be right. Mm -hmm. We may be looking at Freddie Mac, Fannie Mae, Fannie Mae uh, kind of things so where the government is backing them, but I don't think the government can support the entire bond market, corporate bond market. Well, well, Chris, what about the idea here, though, that maybe it, the Fed is sort of stuck here? I mean, there's this expectation that even if things get worse, the Fed really can't pull back. And even if things get better, the Fed really can't pull back without causing some sort of, you know, market ruction. I mean, that seems to be part of the point that Scott and other folks seem to be making, Chris. Oh, the Fed is, you know, I mean, they just came in uh, with such size, they're not going to be able to pull back. They have an enormous balance sheet. It will take a decade to begin to unwind that Fed balance sheet. It almost took a decade to begin, you know, to unwind it after 08. This one's double the size of 08. So, uh, no, I think the Fed's still going to be coming in to try and bail out this economy everywhere they can. Uh, I was very uncomfortable with some of the, the things they did to, to CBDs, yeah. uh, to waiving the mark-to-market rules. I mean, really, really uh, strong moves by the Fed. And, you know, we're right at the edge of potentially negative interest rates as it is. So uh, they're stuck where they're pushing on a string like they were in 08. But it's clear they're going to keep coming in with everything they've got. Who is out there buying? I mean, there are definitely people who are rebalancing their portfolios after the big sell-off that we saw in March. But who's out there buying the dips day after day here? You know, Scarlett, I think uh, it is. Uh, some non-U.S. money is still coming back to the U.S.A. as one of the better places to be. Uh, let's keep in mind that Asia still had a slow Japan economy, uh, and Europe is still reeling with Brexit and now has even more complex issues. So the U.S. is one of the better places to be in terms of parking your money. But as you said, coming out of the break, you know, the market last fall was melting up. Right now, we're just uh, seesawing. I, I don't see us breaking out of this you know, say 29, 
2950 in the S&P 500. Uh, the market is back to some of the levels we saw last summer. And last summer, you had really good uh, uh, PE ratios. You know, they were rising constantly. You had corporate earnings that were okay, but they weren't spectacular. You have corporate earnings now that are just a disaster. So uh, unless you think there's going to be a massive PE expansion, I don't see how this ma- uh, market breaks out of its 200-day moving average. And it's going to be the classic bear market seesaw pattern. So, Chris, then in terms of just uh, general sentiment here, I mean, this is a relatively, we should point out, this has been a relatively low volume rally and the participation in it, at least by a variety of metrics that the street uses, uh, definitely seems to indicate this is a, a relatively small cohort of people buying into this. There is a general sense here, though, Chris, that at some point, um, just the a resiliency of this country and the resiliency of our economy will bounce back, whether it's in months or years, who knows? Um, but is there a case to be made here that when the dust clears, the U.S. is going to be the best game in town, globally speaking? Well, when the dust clears, I would agree. When you and I are willing to get on an airplane and travel, uh, when people are interested in booking uh, cruises and traveling, um, the U.S. will be strong. But let's not forget, we were having a trade war with uh, China. They haven't finished the phase one of the China, of the trade war. We go back to phase two negotiations. And oh, by the way, before we even turn around and open our eyes, um, if the NFL is playing, we're going to be right in front of a U.S. election. And, and a U.S. election that right now I'm really worried. Uh, if you have COVID-19 still in the fall and you have to do mail-in ballots, uh, we're already seeing that that is set up to just be a lawsuit storm around the country and just mm. so violent. I hate to think of a contested U.S. election. I could say that's not good for the U.S. equity market, and that's not good for foreign investors looking at the U.S. equity market. So I think we're at and a perhaps bumpy that's road why... before we get back to Yeah. No, I, I was just going to follow up and say that perhaps that's why um, – Volatility in the S&P 500 is at a, at the six-month point is higher right now than it is at the one-year mark. That was something Luke Kawa pointed out in a Bloomberg News story. Um, Chris, just to follow up on that point about the um, the unrest that could follow, Larry Fink, Ray Dalio, and others have warned that corporate tax rates and perhaps individual tax rates will have to start rising to help pay for all the stimulus that we've put into the economy. What is your thinking on that? Well, and you could throw uh, Warren Buffett into that group. So I think that's a pretty sage-wise group to listen to. Um, And there's no question. You're talking about double the amount of federal stimulus thrown at this health crisis that we saw in the 08 uh, recession. And we saw it finish paying for the 08 recession in terms of taxes and stimulus. So uh, the bill that's going to come from this is, is going to be huge. And that's why some people, while inflation has been nascent, some people are worried that normally when you have a Federal Reserve balance that big, you see inflation. It may not happen again this time, but, but the federal budget deficits are going to be a problem. Look at the Treasury options that are coming out this week. They're, they're going okay. There's still a bid for, for U.S. Treasuries. But we are an incredible debtor nation where now it's a huge, maybe 100% or more of GDP. Um, that's just not a healthy place to be long-term. Uh, the U.S. will still be strong coming out of this, but 
uh, it's going to be crippled, I think, in terms of the federal deficits. And, and that's going to be a problem for the next administration, whatever it is, whoever it is. Chris, um, you mentioned how Treasury is issuing a ton of debt to pay for all the stimulus that we've got going on here. And there is still a bid right now. We also have the Federal Reserve, of course, um, buying a lot of assets, too. It's basically embarked upon unlimited QE, and it has to keep buying more to keep the Treasury market functioning. Will this bout of QE be as smooth as it was in prior asset purchase programs, or do you see room for some kind of disruption? How could it go wrong? Well, I think, Scarlett, my concern is, you know, each QE, when we got to QE3 last time, they were less effective every time. Now you're right, we're suddenly in QE infinity. And they moved away from just the Treasury market uh, and the mortgage market uh, into the credit market, even all the way out into high yield. And as I said, they, they waived some of the mark-to-market rules. Those are just fundamental things that, that are very disconcerting um, to to provide a bid into the high-yield market. You saw spreads narrow, and then they widen back out. Uh, so it's an accordion pattern within the high-yield market. Uh, I think the markets are operating efficiently. You're just going to have a huge supply of U.S. Treasury debt yeah. now and well into the future. So there are concerns that we always have to keep in the back of our mind. Yeah. Chris, I want to get a sense from you. How is CalSTRS <coughs> positioning to hedge against another like down in the market. Um, what are your risk mitigating strategies right now? Well, we're keeping those as uh, a big chunk of our market uh, portfolio there. 10% of our portfolio. We're still keeping our fixed income weightings up. Um, and for us, it really is all about diversification. We're, we're underweight global equity. We really think that uh, this market is going to have some weakness and trade down in the range. So Going into uh, the last uh, couple of weeks with these rallies back and forth, uh, we've taken some profits at times. Uh, we've repositioned our equity portfolio to be more defensive. So we're going to tilt defensive. We're going to tilt uh, where I've said before, cash is king. The return on cash is trash, as, as uh, Ray Dalio likes to point out. But boy, liquidity is king. And we're seeing investment opportunities already coming about uh, from the disruption people that need cash, people that need bridge financing. And I think they're going to be, uh, you know, not doubled, huge double-digit returns like we saw out of the 08 crisis, but nice, strong returns that are available. Uh, and just the dichotomy in this market, uh, you know, just like you're saying today with the indexes giving you different returns, the, the stay-at-home stocks are the ones that are all at, all at new highs and leading this market, where the traditional go-to-work stocks are just crumbling. And as you said, oil's black because there's just no demand. Yeah, uh, well said, Chris. Well, what about, uh, you kind of mentioned something about credit uh, a minute ago. I'm wondering if you do see opportunities there uh, for some sort of investment in private credit. Uh, is that going to be maybe a little bit more of a yield play for a lot of the funds out there that maybe can't find it in normal fixed income spaces? Well, I think for the for institutional investors, Romain, yes, it is going to be an investment opportunity. Uh, and we're already starting to see that. Uh, you know, you already heard the private equity firms immediately asked all their portfolio companies to tap their credit lines to, to ramp up on their liquidity. We're seeing some of the middle market companies that have some financing uh, come back and start renegotiating to extend that for longer time periods. 
So we're in the 08 crisis. You really did actually see equity opportunities, real estate, other things where you could buy businesses at discounted prices. This one has very much more the tone of a debt offering and, and where people just need to, as I said, borrow money to bridge uh, through this crisis until the economy slowly starts coming back on its feet. And as you get into the summer, you're going to have more and more companies. Think of the retail industry, the oil industry, certainly anything in the um, uh, uh, consumer goods industry need additional financing because we're not going to go rushing back into the mall. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we see that already with uh, the places that have reopened. Um, a lot of money is flowing into private assets that are meant to be uncorrelated with public markets. But I wonder, Chris, are these investors who are plowing money into private assets a little bit late to the party here? Because private assets, they're illiquid, um, they're hard to exit, and frankly, they're pretty cyclical. I mean, I look at real estate, for instance, and you know, you talk about how a lot of these retail companies are not going to get the, the traffic, the foot traffic that a lot of people anticipate. They have yet to really see the fallout. You know, you're seeing sticky prices right now because uh, you're just mentally anchored back to, to business back in February. You don't understand and don't know how to price the fact that, you, that say, in a retail mall, none of the tenants are going to pay rent for two months out of the year or maybe three, rent, three, three months. Uh, in an apartment complex, let's say 50% of your apartment complex won't pay rent for two or three months. They might. You're not going to kick them out. They'll stay. Um, and but how do you manage that? How do you value that? Does that mean that this year is a is a twenty percent write down? Um, the private equity firms are looking back at the March thirty one lows and they suddenly see this rebound that we had in April. So does that mean a portfolio company is down at the March thirty first price, or is it just barely a you know we're only fifteen percent or so off the highs in February? So are these companies still worth? only a 10% write-down. So I think it's, it's going to be very slow in private equity and in real estate uh, because there's just no uncertainty. Appraisers have no idea how to value real estate right in here. Um, but they don't want to write it down aggressively because uh, we all have the hope the economy will come back and the market implies yeah. the economy will come back quickly. Yeah. Chris, I want to get your thoughts on about this move that we saw in futures markets last week, uh, anticipating uh, negative rates here uh, in the U.S. That was priced in last week. We've heard from several Fed officials, including uh, Charles Evans in Chicago and uh, Raphael Bostic down in Atlanta, basically saying that's not going to happen. And of course, Jerome Powell uh, has also made it clear uh, that he would make, like to make sure that doesn't happen. I'm curious if you think we would actually get to that level where we would cross the line where the nominal rate did actually go negative and how we would sort of, I guess, uh, how the market would react to that if that did happen. Well, I can tell you, Glenn Hosakawa, our head of fixed income, has said, no, it can't go negative. Um, uh, I have textbooks from college that say there's no such thing as negative interest rates. So... I'd love to be that strong and say, no, it's not going to happen. Uh, I, that was very surprising last week, and, and I don't think the Fed wants it. But the Fed can't control the long end of that market. And as you said, the two-year um, and the 10-year the trading down at, at such low rates, the market could take rates slightly negative. But, I, gosh, I've got to think we've learned from Europe that the negative rates are not effective. Uh, disincentive to yeah. savings, disincentive to cash in the bank, it's crazy. 
So will negative rates, if we get it in the U.S., will it play out the same way that it has in Europe and Japan? Well, uh, the U.S. economy is different, but I've got to think that, uh, you know, we have two prime examples of developed nations that, that negative rates did not help um, uh, help the economy, didn't stimulate any growth. So it is not an effective uh, Federal Reserve tool. Uh, I think the, the view of at that point uh, where the dollar would be, you brought up dollar weakness, uh, which, which hurts the trade side. I mean, international trade is just frozen. Even China, as it has reopened, has found that international trade is so weak, um, there aren't the orders and the demand coming in. So to me, negative interest rates would just really compound the problem in this overall economy. Uh, and obviously, the equity market isn't, isn't envisioning that at all at this point. We had a timely conversation with Richard Haas, president of the Council on Foreign Relations. Richard has led the nonpartisan think tank in New York since 2003. He's a veteran diplomat and author. His newest book, published this week, is called The World, A Brief Introduction. He wrote this book to help Americans develop a better understanding of the world. We started by asking Richard about rising tensions between the U.S. and China and whether the world's two biggest economies have entered a new Cold War. This is the most important relationship uh, of our era, Scarlett. Just like, say, the U.S.-Soviet relationship defined uh, the second half of the 20th century, the Franco-German-British relationship defined the first half of the 20th century, as goes the U.S.-Chinese relationship, so will go a lot of the 21st century. And if we end up in something like the Cold War, which is possible, but th thankfully by no means inevitable, Imagine how much more difficult it will be to tackle issues like climate change, to prevent or manage future pandemics, to deal with, say, a North Korean nuclear or Iranian nuclear challenge. So we don't want this to happen. But could it happen? Uh, obviously. But that, to me, is a, is a challenge to American and Chinese foreign policy, to statecraft, if you will. So, Richard, I mean, part of that challenge, though, is trying to sort of get an understanding of what China's ambitions are. And you draw a line back to the 1970s and the reforms back then under Deng, uh, Deng Xiaoping, and you go all the way to today with Xi Jinping. I mean, how do you sort of assess what China, or at least what Xi Jinping's China, wants to be, and how should the U.S. then respond to that? Well, it's a big question, and there's a big debate. I'll give you my point of view. I think the biggest preoccupation for Xi Jinping is to keep the primacy uh, of his own position. He abolished term limits, as you know, keep the Communist Party paramount, maintain what they would define as the territorial integrity of, of China. So they want to stop liberalism in Hong Kong. They want to stop any separatism. They are, they're worried about what happens with Taiwan and obviously oppose any independence movement there. They also want to have a lot of influence over their part of the world in the Asia Pacific. So for us, the challenge is how do we criticize Chinese behavior at home when it warrants it over things like uh, the repression of the Uyghur minority over their violation of their commitments in Hong Kong? And how do we work with our allies in the region, South Korea, Japan, Australia and others, to push back against Chinese uh, extension of, of their power and their claims? That's the you know, that's a familiar challenge in foreign policy. What's different here is we want to do it in such a way to push back where necessary, but not preclude cooperation on something like climate change and not to kill off entirely the economic relationship. 
One thing that I find really interesting is that it seems like China keeps getting in its own way. And I think about the way that China wants to step into the global leadership vacuum, but it ends up being kind of clumsy about it, especially with how it's uh, treating Europe, for instance. Has Beijing missed its opportunity or do you think that it still has plenty of time to exercise its soft power effectively? It's really interesting what you point out. Look, they've hurt themselves with the whole pandemic. The fact that it broke out either in a wet market that never should have been open or out of a laboratory. And then the Chinese silenced the critics, the public health experts. They allowed people with the virus to leave Wuhan. So day after day after day, China mishandled uh, this challenge. Their authoritarian system is not an attractive model to, uh, in places like Europe. Uh, or much else of the world, which is which is democratic. So I actually think there are, are limits on, on China's uh, appeal. Uh, and I think that's something that, you know, the, the real question is, can we compete with it? And it's both an opportunity and a challenge for us. Can we show, for example, that the way we are dealing with the pandemic is superior to them? So far, I don't think we've covered ourselves in glory. And we've got to show that Western democracies, that our economies uh, offer a, a better path. There's a, there's a competition of example. And right now, neither side is distinguishing itself. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, we are supposed to get that National People's Congress uh, next week, Richard. Uh, are you expecting to hear anything uh, from that Congress uh, that would maybe give us a little bit of insight into uh, maybe the direction that, uh, that uh, Xi is going to push China? I think what we're going to see is uh, a lot of boasting or confident statements about how well China's done dealing with the with the pandemic. No admission of mistakes or responsibility. It's just not in their DNA. But also they're going to appeal, I think, to nationalist instincts, the idea that the United States or other parts of the world are critical of China. They're there to block China's rise and so forth. So I think what she is going to try to do is distract attention to some extent from the slowdown of economic growth over the mishandling of the pandemic and in some ways wrap himself in, in the flag. He would not be the first person to do that. No, he wouldn't. All right, let's go a little bit around the world here. Um, I want to get your thoughts on Europe because we know, of course, the German court ruled that the European Central Bank stimulus uh, is a violation of German law. What do you think will be the biggest determinant to whether Europe survives the COVID-19 crisis stronger or in a more fragile state? That was a really interesting decision. I think it's important, though, to see that it didn't come out of the blue. Think about it. Over the last few years, the entire European project has, has lost a lot of momentum. Brexit was, in some ways, the, the biggest development. So my guess is we're entering an era where the balance of power between individual capitals in Europe and Brussels moves in the direction of individual capitals. We're already seeing it on such things as immigration and freedom of movement. My guess is you're going to see more and more national pushback. So the European Union will survive, but it will become a less integrated uh, entity. So, uh, Richard, I mean, you've written a book here about global literacy at a time where it seems like a lot of nations are starting to sort of turn a little bit more inward. We've seen a rise of nationalism or at least what passes for nationalism, at least here in the U.S. I mean, one of the legacies for President Trump uh, and his administration, for better or for worse, is going to be uh, this idea that he has essentially changed the relationship uh, of the U.S. with the rest of the world. And I'm wondering that once he leaves office, whether it's 10 months from now or four years and 10 months from now, is that relationship between the U.S. and the rest of the world permanently altered, or at least altered in a way where for the foreseeable future, this is kind of the relationship that we're going to have to have? Well, 
It's a great question. And I think there is a difference in whether it's in six or eight months or in, in four years in that amount. The relationship between the United States and the rest of the world will be altered. Donald Trump is really represents a major departure from every American president, from Harry Truman through Barack Obama. The rest of the world doesn't see us as they used to. Our reliability and predictability are in question. But if it were somebody like uh, Joe Biden to become the next president, he, he is much more in the foreign policy mainstream. Some would see that as a compliment, some uh, perhaps not. But I think that's, you know, I think we can somewhat go back to where we were, but not completely. Uh, there'll be people in the Democratic Party who are very resistant to, quote unquote, free trade, very critical uh, of China. So I actually think, you know, presidents are not just drivers of American foreign policy. They also reflect the, uh, the mood. But I do think in the future we'll see probably American presidents who are less unilateral, who understand that in a global world, the United States needs, needs partners. Our allies are real, uh, real advantages for us. And I think also we'll have a greater appreciation of how the world affects us. You know, that's the whole lesson of the pandemic. It's also the lesson of climate change. And I think Joe Biden would be different than Donald Trump on climate change. I think from, from most other, uh, most future presidents, you'll see a greater acceptance of the fact that what happens in the world affects the United States that we can't simply you know, pull up the drawbridge over our two oceans and be safe and secure. Hmm. I think in that sense, well, we will be more integrated with the rest of the world. Richard, final question to you. Um, we've seen how investors are starting to price election risk in uh, S&P 500 volatility at the six month point is higher than at the one year point. From where you sit, what do you think is the biggest election risk? Is it something like what we saw in the past, interference from a Russia, from a China? Is it that it could be contested and end up in court? A short answer is yes. I also think it's going to be probably the pandemic. Imagine, you know, what happened in Wisconsin a few weeks ago to me is really interesting. Imagine you have a public health challenge where it's unsafe for people to gather in large uh, numbers. And we don't have in many states the mechanisms in place for, for balloting, for voting by mail. So what do you do? How can people safely gather at a limited number of polling places amidst a resurgence of COVID-19? That to me, if you ask me, the real danger, that is it. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Finally, we wrap things up with Nariana Kachalakota, the former president of the Minneapolis Fed. He is now an economics professor at the University of Rochester and a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. Professor Kachalakota told us that if the central bank does not act more aggressively, it should be held accountable for delaying the recovery. 
I began by asking him why his recent column accuses the Fed of being a, quote, drag. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Scarlett. I, I, it's more the latter. I think, you know, uh, uh, Chairman Powell's assessment of the economy, unfortunately, is exactly right. Uh, you know, we know the numbers from, from April. Uh, we know that the, the uh, labor report we get in, uh, for May is late, likely to look even grimmer. Uh, so we know the numbers. Uh, we know there's some risks to the downside as we move forward about how fast is the recovery going to be. So all this I agree with the chairman's assessment. I think uh, where I, 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 uh, my column was aimed, pointing at was more, okay, we've got these situations. Um, we, even the, 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 the modal outlook looks bad and the downside outlook is, looks even worse. So, you know, why not roll out everything you've got available right now? And, and that, that would look like, you know, trying to flatten the yield curve down clo- uh, clo- uh, close to zero or even, uh, and I, I push for this, and, and uh, Professor Rogoff at uh, Harvard has, has said this as well, really trying to explore ways to, to, to push interest rates along the curve um, even uh, further below zero. But it, it, I, I'm curious, though, Nariana, isn't there a general uh, perception here in the market, though, that to a certain extent the Fed is already doing that? So the idea of going to zero, whether you actually do it in terms of taking nominal yields down to zero or you take some of the measures that the Fed has already put out there, the effect almost seems like it could potentially be the same. I, I guess what I'm saying is, does it matter if we go to zero uh, on a nominal basis or if we just sort of continue doing what the Fed has been doing so far? Well, I, you know, I think the Fed is, if, if it sticks to a, I think this is why some of us have been calling for the Fed really exploring negative rates, because if you treat zero as the lower bound, there's just not a lot more uh, room for, uh, for the Fed to do more. You know, people talk about balance sheet policies. Well, the game plan with balance sheet policies is to push down on long-term yields. And there's just not a lot of room there unless you start to take seriously the idea, okay, we can go negative with with yields. Um, so I, I think that's, again, the situation is, uh, uh, you know, I, I joined the Federal Reserve as a policymaker back in October of 2009. I thought the situation was dire then with, with an unemployment rate mm-hmm. of 10%. Well, this is, you know, this is much worse. So I think it really calls for the Fed to be doing what it can with the tools it has now and really saying openly, look, we're exploring ways to make those tools even more powerful by uh, being willing right. to push interest rates negative and maybe even deeply negative. So an unprecedented crisis uh, requires an unprecedented response. I get that. When you look at the Fed's dual mandate of full employment and price stability, explain how lower or even negative rates can help a central bank get more people back to work. Europe and Japan have had negative rates, and it hasn't exactly resulted in a hiring boom. Yeah, I think... The, the challenge is that what Europe and Japan have done is what I would call uh, shallow negative rates. Um, they, they've gone a little bit below zero. Um, I think the situation in those, in, in both, both in Europe and Japan is better than it would have been uh, in the absence of their doing that. Um, but it really is, uh, it means that you really have to be thinking about uh, uh, ways to go even more, to go deeply negative. Um, trying to decouple um, the interest that uh, banks are earning on reserves from what people are earning in terms of of cash. So why why is this helpful? Why is it effective? Well, if 
if uh, the Fed's uh, interest is paying to banks on reserves goes negative, that means that they're going to be willing to bid up the prices of and bid down the yields of securities in the marketplace, like mortgage-backed securities, for example. Um, that mean, and they're going to be willing to make loans on cars and on, on uh, other kinds of security lending at lower interest rates. This will stimulate spending. Yeah, and I get yeah. that if we're going down to something like 50 basis points below zero, you know, that's just a step in the right direction, which is why I think the Fed should really be exploring yeah. ways to, to try to figure out ways to go even more deeply negative. So, but to draw the distinction here, because we've seen uh, some evidence, some real world examples uh, of negative policy rates. There was a paper released yesterday by the ECB. There was a big paper last year by the Bank of International Settlements. It seemed uh, to suggest that some of the experiments that we've seen in Europe and in Japan had an outside negative effect and didn't necessarily provide the positive effects of those negative rates were intended. Why would a U.S. policy uh, into negative territory somehow produce a better result than what we saw in Europe or in Japan? So, you know, I think whenever you look at a, any given uh, change in interest rates, if you look at the change in interest rates from, say, 0.5% uh, down to 0.1% on the positive side, very tough to pick up the impact of that in all, given all the shocks that hit the economy, just trying to tease out the impact of that one move is very difficult. Now we're talking about very small uh, negative uh, interest rate moves by the ECB and Japan, the Bank of Japan. Um, we, ha on balance, those are are, are going to be are positive, but uh, in terms of their stimulus in the economy, but they're they're, they're definitely small. Um, you know, I think that uh, uh, you. The, the, the financial institutions often complain about uh, their lack of profitability when interest rates are low. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think the Fed is in the game of trying to make sure that financial institutions are profitable. They're in the game of, of, yeah. of solving the dual mandate problem, trying to get unemployment down low as fast as it possibly can, and, um, and uh, to get, get inflation uh, back up to 2%. Um, you know, the Wall Street Journal's uh, survey of, uh, of economists today, the outlook for unemployment is it's going to remain uh, elevated. That is, at 5.8%, still elevated above where we were, right. um, uh, even out until 2023. So there's, there's definitely room for improvement on that outlook, and the Fed should be looking for ways to, to, to get that improvement. If there is negative rates, obviously there are costs associated with that. Um, certainly uh, the debt goes up. Um, and for those people who are saving money or pensions, is there a way to have negative rates and not have it be terrible and disastrous for pension funds, for pensions, and for people's savings? You know, the, on, the, on the savers part, I mean, the, the fact facing savers with negative rates is a feature of the plan, not a bug. I mean, it is... Um, it, you, what you're trying to do is to make financial assets less attractive to buy, to encourage people to spend instead. Uh, you know, I understand right now, you know, spending looks pretty tough given all the restrictions we have uh, around the country, but those restrictions are going to start to ease up, and you're going to want to stimulate people to spend um, in the, in the, uh, on the margins they can. So trying to make assets expensive is, is, is the right way to be, to be uh, 
That does it for this episode of What You Missed This Week. If you like this, please make sure to subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to tune in to our Market Close show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg Television and from 4 to 5 p.m. streaming on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. The Bloomberg Sustainable Business Summit returns to London on April 25th for a solution-driven look at the sustainable business and finance landscape, looking at the latest trends in ESG regulations, supply chain innovation, and transition finance. Speakers include leaders from CDP, Emirates Environment Group, TNFD, C-Trace, COA, and more. Summit advisors include City and Schneider Electric. Visit BloombergLive.com slash SBS 2024 to learn more.